G'day, welcome to Radio Notes, where those in music talk life and those in life chat music and more. I'm John Merch. And a quick heads up, today's audio is a little shoddy because it's via something called Skype. We are investigating something a little new called Zoom, and so hopefully we can improve that quality in the coming weeks and months. Thanks also for your feedback, particularly from those listening on the wireless, but more generally via the podcast format as well. You can send your feedback. RadioNotesPodcast.com has all the details there. With no further ado, I want to dive into our guest for today. Bill Tolson has released a stack of albums since 2015, some solo, others with his band, The Learners. Tolson was a founding member of the well-known Australian Gravel Records store in the 70s. By the early 80s, they established indie label Rampant, releasing records for the former member of the sports, Stephen Cummings, as well as past member of Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds, Hugo Race, and many more. The Old Days Were the Better Days is the title of their latest standalone single. Apart from the obvious nostalgia in the title, what is it about and who is the singer and songwriter behind it? It was time to get Bill on the show to have an unscripted chat. Bill, welcome to Radio Notes. Uh, Good day, John, and thank you very much for having me on. I did a handful of just tunes that I had sort of on the side with a young producer, a guy called Charlie Irvine, a very talented young man and actually the son of the guitarist Russell Irvine, who plays in the band The Learners. Just produced a handful of songs and that was one of them. And it's a little sort of ditty, it's a little reflection, an observation of life and I suppose a song that you can write when you, you get a little bit older. Five decades under your belt, but only a year later from being married. Absolutely correct, John. I've had a lot of life-changing experiences over the years. I was very much into music when I was younger and uh, had a bit of a break and family life and I suppose building a little bit of prosperity and had a few children and, and things and, you know, settled down into that. And further on, as the years went by, things change as they often do. I found myself sort of getting, well, very much back into music. Really in about 2015 was really sort of a, a turning point and just really felt I'd lost my father in 2014 and I was brought up in the type of environment where, you know, you had your mum, you had your dad, and when you've had that consistency over such a long period of time, I suppose you sort of take things for granted and losing my father was quite a bit of a shock because, you know, we used to swim at the pool and go to sporting events together and things. He was a very sprightly, fit guy that was playing soccer sort of up until his 80s. So that was sort of a main sort of turning point which actually um, influenced or, or wrote a song for me which I suppose still, still, this still does relate to the old days were the better days. A son of an immigrant? Uh, oh, John, thanks so much for doing your research. That's a song I wrote about my dad. I'm the son of an immigrant to a man who sailed across the sea to start a new life and family. And look, he was an amazing man, Northern Englishman. The song I was actually thinking about is a song called You Are Not Alone. After I lost dad, and I obviously lost grandparents and things early, but personally in my life, and I found myself in bed asleep and this thing, you are not alone, is coming into your head. I think it was like a therapeutic type thing. And from that, I wrote a song called You Are Not Alone. Basically, I suppose, just after assessing things and thinking about what people go through, you're not alone in any of these, because any of these things that happen, billions of other people have been through them. So it was sort of like a consoling little song. Yes, a song called Son of an Immigrant is a song that I did 
write about my father. 2015 is where that song you were talking about just there, You Are Not Alone, off the Ride LP. Was that your first release or were there some releases back when you first started in the 70s? I actually was in a band called Clear As Day. There is an, an old 80s clip on YouTube, a song called Some Excited Feeling. And we played all the local, uh, you know, we supported the local bands at the time, Painters and Dockers, we played all the Melbourne venues, the Armadale Hotel, we did Moomba and, and things. So that would have been around 86, 87. Interestingly enough, the bass player in that band, a guy called Matthew Keane, I'm now actually playing with now, <laughs> with a, with another guy called Rusty. So look, we're all around the same age. Now we're all fit and sprightly and, and doing our music, but just on that songwriting thing, and I was thinking about it before speaking to yourself, the first year or two I was literally writing 30, 40 songs a year and reflecting on it and the writing that I'm doing at the moment, it's obviously a creative process, but the beauty of it is, you know, you hear, and I think there's two styles of writing, of songwriting. I think one is where people will go, oh, and look, and I've heard some great songwriters. I'm not saying there's a right way or, or a wrong way, but I've heard some great writers go, oh, no, every afternoon at four o'clock, I'll sit down for a couple of hours and I start writing and I'll write and I'll, oh, even if I don't want to write, I'll just sit down there and do it. My approach, which I think is fortunate <laughs> for myself, because I'm probably not that disciplined and a little bit sort of fly by the seat of my pants a bit all of the songs I've written most of them I've written in one shot they've just sort of all come out and I've tapped it into notes on the phone as it's been coming into my mind the thoughts and the good thing about it and I know if I haven't done it that way or if I've tried another way they never seem as natural or as flowing because they're not and I did read a great uh, I think it was, was with Bob Dylan I don't will the songs, I welcome them. We're going to use the single The Old Days with the Better Days as a bit of an anchor of this conversation. I want to pick up, take you back to, because we were talking about your father, I do acknowledge did pass away back in 2014. Yep. Did I see a photo of you and your old man near what would have been a classic kind of Aussie car? Yeah, that was my father. It would have been his first car that he bought brand new and that they ended up selling to buy a house in Armadale. And that's it. I think that that just shows how times have changed too, John. You could literally sell a car to buy a house. House, yeah. I know the, the parents' house receipt was only like three thousand pounds in nineteen sixty four and that the car was probably a thousand pounds going going back to those those days. That's what we're saying about the old days possibly were better days. There was some sort of equality between things. Even if they were a bit expensive, there was some sort of equality to them. Oh, John, I'd love to share. I'll give you a real true life example of how much things have changed. And I just even brought this up again with my daughter when we were out to lunch last Mm -hmm. weekend. In 1964, these were all absolute factual figures. My father drove trams in Melbourne. His pay was £1,000 a year. The same year, he bought a house in Armadale. That house was £2,996. Having said that, that song is probably more about, from my experience, just about how life has changed for me. And I haven't mentioned this publicly, but I can mention it now because I am sort of can deal with it now. But like five years ago too, I lost a son. And that son was an incredibly talented person. They were 21 when they passed away. 
my understanding of Connor and the rising in sin, I hope I've got that right. Riders of Sin, he put out about seven, eight odd albums on, they're all on Bandcamp. Just such a charismatic guy. Like, and I, you know, they, when they say the good die young, and I think there's probably a bit of truth in that, even when you watch, you know, the news and things, the, the lovely person that's been killed in the. He was 21 years of age. It sounds yep. like it was like whisker of a year from your father's passing as well. Correct. What got you through that? Was it music or was it something else? How do you get through that? What was 2015 like for you, Bill? Honestly, I would have just howled for probably about two or three years. I mean that like you just go, ah, you'd just be in pain because it's that you never think it's going to happen to you. You, you know what I mean? Like, it's not good to acknowledge, but, you know, you'd watch the news or you'd watch this and, oh, yeah, well, that happens in, over there and that happens there. And, you know, there's a song I wrote on Mune that's got lines and they're going, you see things that happen on the news, but, you know, you never think it's going to happen to you. It's got that sort of thing running through. But, look, it was just I did lots and lots and lots and lots of writing during that period. But, look, you just have to, like, there's not much you can do. I mean, I, I mean, but it was yeah, it was just like you, you'd suffer as I suppose any normal person would from grief. So mm. you would break down. You'd be driving and you'd be, oh, you know, you just that's what would happen. And the the tragic, you know, I took Connor to see the Rolling. We saw the Rolling Stones a few months before that. We saw Bob Dylan. I bought him tickets so we'd go and see the Beach Boys in the Palais. And I'm just saying this totally, totally objectively, and I mean, you know, because when there were wakes and different things, there'd just be like hundreds of people. Like, he was just so charismatic and he was honestly one of those people that never said a bad word about anyone and he was just like cool. He was just a cool, young dude that people loved. Yeah, that's not the reason. It's tragic. It's tragic. Obviously, Mm. it's just tragic. But, you know, the fact that he was also... And we were involved, you know, we played soccer together, we swam together each week, we played music team. Not a lot of music. I was involved in business and I, I worked in, you know, I was, I was involved in businesses and things for a while. But we still did a lot of things together. My, I remember when my father took me to see the Battle of Britain and uh, I watched it again recently, I didn't really like the film much, but I just remember being there with Dad at the theatre. Saw Dad all the time, but I remember him taking me to the theatre. So these things, I thought, It'd just be a lovely thing for Connor to do. And the last, without, you know, big name, the last couple of Stones concerts prior to that, through contacts, we were backstage. I was sitting in the back garden one night and I'm thinking that, yeah, taking Connor, and I said, no, I said, I'm going to do it. So I knew we couldn't get our normal, the normal good seats because it was a different promoter. So I actually spent three grand on for two tickets just so that we had, like, amazing... And the experience was incredible. You know, we were five metres from the, you know, some wraparound lip with Jagger and Richards and things coming out. Giving Connor a sense of consistency of that father-son relationship? I genuinely believe I was. But I've been in a family environment where, you know, we go to the Royal Melbourne show. I'd go with my parents or to Moomba. And you just do it every year. Yeah. You just do it. You wouldn't never skip a beat, right? So same with our family or my family. We would go to Moomba every year. Now, I, I was separated in a lot after that divorce, but still, even as a family unit, we would go, we were going to Moomba till the kids were 20-odd. We were all members, because my father was English and he played professional soccer, 
I follow, I've worked out now I only really like soccer because Dad likes soccer, but I played a lot of played soccer with him at Caulfield Park just socially, and often Connor would play, and another son James at the time was playing as well. But we had that Melbourne victory. We were members for ten years, and we all you know we had five seats. I'd go, Dad would go, Connor would go, and if not another child. So no, that I think that family consistency thing. Look, it's healthy. I mean, it's good. It's healthy for everyone in the family. Back to Connor. He did the guitar work on Annie, the opening cut. Correct. I was recording then. And it would have been the first sort of piece of music when I decided because I was working and I thought, not work so hard sooner. I want to get into music because I realise I'm getting older and I do want to do it. I started just recording at home. Connor played, and look, and it would have just been round, and I said, oh, you want to whack some guitar on this? And he played, I mean, he's, a very, he's an exceptionally talented drummer as well. Like, he just had amazing feel and groove. So within a moment, he'd sort of like, he'd picked up Gibson, Les Paul, and, yeah, just does this amazing little blues, like blues riff. And, like, he's just a kid, but he just had amazing... And a young adult, obviously, you know, 2021. But, yeah, just look incredibly talented. And same with drums. Like, he was a, an exceptional drummer. And he used to jam with a mate called Stefan. He'd have Stefan over every night. And, look, the family home is, was around the corner, like literally 100 yards away. And he'd have his mate Stefan over and they'd just record every night. They'd pop over and, of course, they'd be more familiar with the newer technology which is was your garage bands and logic and things like that that people are using on their Macs. But no, look, just to, so that was the first really foray thing. Oh, I want to do some things. So that was some, just some writing and stuff I had, which I put down and recorded very basically. Like I can't really play keyboards, and you know I, I did most instruments myself. It would have just been a one plod, 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 plod. You know, drum beat behind each track. But having said that, like you know, songs like "You Brighten My Day," and I think was the first sort of release really i'm trying to find that connection of whether or not it was the father's passing or whether or not it was a connection or something you could enjoy doing with connor that sparked you in getting back to music oh that would have definitely had an influence i mean even connor would be able to be playing rolling stone songs together and this was quite interesting like even with mom was saying you know Connie, you probably got to move out of the home soon. You got to do this. You got to be responsible. You got to get a job. So I'd be the one, you know. Just uh, I had Connor doing some work for me. I run sort of a bit of a rooming house set up, and we did actually. It, I played with him once, just around the corner, in a little uh, coffee shop called uh, Platform Three. But uh, I was saying to Connor, now, mate, you know, you can get it, even do some covers, and you could do this once a night. You pick up, you know, you week you pick up 150 bucks doing that. You can do some coffee shop work. So just the normal dad stuff, saying. And one of the real tragedies was too, you know, well, to sort of top it off. I said to um. Yeah, because, look, Alana was very studious, his sister, as far as working, pretty much. We'd see each other at least once a week in an evening, on a Sunday evening normally, but also during the week for swimming and other bits and pieces. But I said to Connor this statement that I heard. I said, Connor, and I always played that sort of disciplinarian role, which I don't think is a bad thing. It might not be as fashionable now. (laughs) You know, the old days were better days. Yeah, so the old days were the better days. It's obviously based around... 
you know, these tragedies or these things hadn't happened in my life. I hadn't lost a son. I hadn't lost a father. There was just a real consistency. And look, I'd you know be working hard in whatever field I was doing, and you'd you'd also work with a plan to help your family, and and they really were. But what? And also, just another little story about that. I remember when having dinner with my father, and the whole family was there. Billy, and his name was Bill, Bill as well. He said, "Oh." Billy, things are getting, you know, so bad now with people and the young people. And I said, no, Dad. I said, Dad, they're actually exactly the same. And he said, well, what do you mean? And I said, well, the old people whinge about the young people. I said, they're probably doing that since the cavemen days when the guy's going, oh, look, they can't carve a wheel as well as we used to or out of rock. At the end of that song, I say, every generation tells you so. So I think... I think every generation may go back and go the old days with the better days, whether I suppose they're meaning about the times that they lived in or just themselves being younger. So that comment to Connor, Mm. I said to Connor, I said, "A, a boy does what he wants to do, a man does what he has to do. I said, you've really just got to get, and it was, I know that sounds pretty, you know, dad, boring, you know, dad talking to son, but that, Seriously, had a huge impact. So, like the next week, he's got this job. He's doing some work here. He's just doing. He just like it changed. So I think it snapped because I sort of gave him the heavy words. Connor, fair income. You've got to get it together. Opened your wings, so to speak, through that music education, taking him to gigs, having an open conversation. That you're able to say that that you got the respect because you gave the respect. Absolutely, and I think, and also, you mentioned just before, like I, I did open Gravel Records with a guy that I went to school with. I was 18 years old. You know, we'd save $3,000 each and we bought you know, $5,000 worth of records and opened open Gravel Records, which is still there today. Hold on to that story. We're getting back to that. But back to Connor and yourself, though, about taking him under your wing, about being the responsible father. Well, I suppose there is the lead by example. And, look, I think everyone looks back, obviously, and goes, well, God, I'm not perfect, right? And obviously no one is, and I'm certainly not. I think I was quite, you know, hard and fair. Like I probably didn't tolerate too much sort of crap, so to speak. But I think that firmness, I I think what it is, it's good to learn to do things and learn and fail and then you get better at it. You know, you've got to have one game of pool to learn how to play. You've got to be going to table tennis. You've got to pick up a guitar. You can't just pick it up and go, I don't know what to do and put it down. You know, so you've got to try a bit. But I think that Connor picked up some musical genes, and I'm not saying that definitely from me or wherever they're from, but he was just exceptionally more natural. 16, 17, 18, 19, could I or could any or many people write songs? Right? Like that and really just love it. And I love the background and the history and that's what I was saying. Like, he'd love the fact, oh, Dad, I can gravel records. You know what I mean? He was just a natural. He had this most ridiculous record collection. Yeah, a couple of things, you know, he was telling me, oh, like, he was into Charles Mingus, but then he, he'd know everything about everything. Like, he'd go, oh, Dad, your songs are a little bit like Graham Nash's songs. That's what he kind of told me. And I like have to think twice about Graham. Oh, that's right, that Crosby still. Now, I hadn't heard any of his music, so I was going to have a brief listen to some, but it was so broad. Records were still sort of coming in the mail and stuff, and like, well, yes, but he'd have a of stones, and I'd bought some Beach Boys at the op shop, and he'd go, oh, Dad, can I borrow these? And I'd cut a second copy of Dylan Planet Waves, and I'd give him that. So I was sort of giving him records and was a sponge, but he was, he was just a cool guy. But he was very charismatic. 
having had that situation happen to me, when I watched the news or, you, you know, or I just know as a fact, you know, millions of people lost their son because they didn't come back from a war. Next weekend, a few people will lose their son. I've come to accept it's part of the deal, right? It's a deal I thought I would never be involved in, but it's part of the deal. You know, when I think about it, like my wife, first wife, I never thought I'd be saying first wife and second wife. My first wife lost a son. My wife, sorry, my first wife, I'm sorry, well, she lost a son, but her, she also lost a brother when she was younger. The woman, Debbie, that I'm married to, she lost a younger brother, you know, died of an illness when he was three. You know, it's, you know, it's, I don't think we have to tell anyone out there, but I thought I was immune, which is totally stupid thing to think. You are not immune if you play under the sun and the moon. I'm going to put a link in the show notes. I hope you don't mind to his band camp. I don't know if you know more about this, but there's also a tribute record on vinyl of all things, which must have called into his love of the, uh, the vinyl record. Correct. That was put together by a group of his friends. And as I said, like, he just had so many friends. And people knew of him. And he'd also, like, he, you know, played in numerous musical things at the, you know, Corner Hotel, different clubs around Melbourne and things. So he was performing as well, not, not totally regularly. I'm saying this totally, totally objectively. And it's sort of, like, irrelevant because he ain't here. But he was just so incredibly talented. He was a good-looking kid would have gone uh, well in his field. We're currently in conversation with Bill Tolson. His brand-new single as a solo artist is The Old Days Were the Better. It's why we've been talking about his late son, Connor, there, as well as his late father as well. A lot of grief there within your life, apart from your brand-new wife. What brings you happiness? Um, good question. Uh, my brand new wife. <laughs> now, Debbie's someone that I've, I've, I've loved quite a long time, about eight odd years. And, uh, oh, okay. I Sorry. I thought it was very new. No, no, no. no. Well, it is. You took your time to put a ring on it. <laughs> I know. We haven't, we haven't even been. We haven't been. I think we're married for 12 months in, uh, what is it, the uh, 16th of February next month. Okay. So I think after death or after grief, I would have really mellowed, settled down, like instead of just flying by the seat of my pants and doing everything, I lost the will to really want to work. I found that sort of futile and fortunately I'm in the position to be able to support myself. So thank God for that. Can I ask you about work because yep. how can I put this? Um, hmm. The line of work that I think you're working in was that of real estate, which is about happiness, about building new dreams, about homes as well as houses. Did you just get a disconnect with the work that you're in because of what you're going through in your personal life at the time? Absolutely. Driving me was no longer important and no longer driving. And can I say, look, I always liked music when I was young um, and played guitar and things. I ended up started learning guitar when I was about 10 years old. But I found after when I'd entered the music industry and things, I actually really liked the talking, wheeling and dealing. And that's what I loved about real estate because I'd always been pretty much self-employed doing things. Or if I wasn't self-employed, I'd be given the freedom to feel that I was self-employed. 
because I was always responsible. If I was running, working in a shop, they'd be giving me the keys and they'd say, go and live upstairs. So it was always that type of arrangement. So that's why I sort of, I'd always had an interest in property and, and going back to, you know, the parents' house and watching them grow over time. I thought, gee, property looks all right. Real estate is like being self-employed. I liked it because you'd wheel and deal. So you'd just basically be ringing up people, hi, how are you? And, you know, not you'd be doing the right thing and doing everything you possibly could to get, you know, them the best price for their house. But I liked it because it was like being self-employed and you could, or was being self-employed in many regards and it was like running your own business. So the money that you'd generate from the sale of a house, you'd basically just split it with the office that you worked with. I didn't like it that much that I'd want to buy into a business. I was offered a number of times, you know, do you want to buy into a real estate office? And I sort of declined those offers, but I certainly liked the freedom of it. And there's not as much evening work as people would have you imagine. I'd normally be home by five, six o'clock. Once a week, I might meet someone at six or seven hours when I get home. And yes, you work the weekends, but I think it's one of those things I've, I've been fortunate to have the positive attitude that the things I've done, I've really enjoyed doing them at the time. I love doing them. Like when I was selling Heralds at 10 years old, when I was working in a pizza bar, for the, whatever I was doing, I, I've enjoyed it. Now that I've stepped on it, I couldn't do it. And you're right, the reason I, oh, I can't do it is because of those things aren't important and it just sort of knocked a lot of superficiality away from me. And I'm, when I say it wouldn't matter what line of work you were doing, it just wasn't that important. You know, at the end of the day, Families, you know, I probably never even really said this, but family's really important. Like your loved ones and your friends and, you know, I think we all know that. You go out with your mate, your girlfriend, your wife, your bunch, you get together, you go out for dinner, you go out for lunch. They're important times. That, those things make you feel, feel really good. 1983, you founded your own independent label where you got to work with the likes of the sports Stephen Cummings and Hugo Race of the Bad Seeds. What was it like running a record label? So I worked in retail at a, a shop called The Mighty Music Machine in, in South Dakota when I was about 16 years old. From that, I opened Gravel Records, spent about two, three years at Gravel Records, got tired of retail, got out of that. And I actually started working for a, a company called Musicland in Melbourne, a Musicland record distribution company, and that would have been the early 80s, I'd say around 82, 83. That was basically a record distribution company, and we would sort of fill that gap of what the major recording companies in the country weren't distributing. So there was a lot of independent records like local bands where people would release their own singles. Even with Gravel Records, I released a single by the band called The Cuban Heels, which had Spencer P. Jones in it. So I released my first record actually at Gravel Records and I'm on the label Gravel Records. But look, within that business, I was working for a distribution company. I thought, oh, it'd be fun starting a label and people do start these labels because they like music. I started releasing a few cassettes originally. The first artist I released were Not Drowning Waving, and they knocked on the door, David Bridie and, and John Phillips, and they're still very, very good friends. Nearly 40 years later, I saw John Phillips last weekend. So I started working with Not Drowning Waving and releasing their records. So the, the successes on the label, I suppose, Stephen Cummings' uh, The Love Town album, and it was an album that I absolutely love. I remember being at the recording sessions of that, and it did actually end up relaunching Stephen's career to a, a, a higher, higher level. But that was uh, recorded at John Reese's home 
the, in Hawthorne at the time, the bass player of Men at Work, who had an eight-track recorder in his home, and Mark Woods, a sound engineer who still does sound for the models and done sound literally for Crowded House, who was doing it before he did it with Tism, I think Hunters and Collectors, but lots of the when the big beer barns were happening, Mark Woods was the studio, the sound engineer guy. I'm just smiling a little because you just name dropped Tism as if it was like just another band. Yeah. <laughs> well, Tism, we distributed their album, but then had it was a deal where Musicland, I think, may have paid for some of the pressings and things, but we had good success with an album called Great Trucking Songs of the Renaissance, which did very well for an independent release. Yeah, we were dealing with primarily with the uh, management, which uh, was Gavin Purdy and I think Michael Lynch at the time. We distributed, released and distributed their record. And I think running that label, and yes, uh, we released the record, and I thought, I think the record are an absolutely fantastic band. Still know Hugo. I've seen Hugo do some shows. I'm trying to think of what other. Um, Blue Ruin, um, Adam Lerner played bass in Blue Ruin and he was, he's the guy playing bass in The Learners. There's a lot of long-term relationship stuff happening there. But look, with these labels, people do it because for the love of it, it's like a hobby. It made my work more interesting. I did a lot of the promotional side there too, John, like getting bands on Hey Hey and Countdown at the time. They were great times. I'd be amiss not to ask, how did do you find Daryl Summers? I don't know him personally on any level. But having said that, I worked also with Barry Michael, the guy that did that sort of comedy ditty tune that became a bit of a hit. Barry Michael was on Hey Hey Sad Day and I released a CD for him and we had Daryl Summers producing it and also Paul Hester playing drums on it. And that was at Platinum Studios in Richmond. It probably would have been around mid-80s, I suppose, 84. Hi, I'm Cynthia Toro. My latest album is Moments, and I'm coming up on Radio Notes. Let's get a clear understanding of the Bill Tolson Greville Records story. How did Greville Records become part of your life? At school, we were into the punk thing. So I would have been, you know, 15, 16, friends, older brothers were going to England. They were dyeing their hair blue. They'd be coming back with T-shirts of leopard skin prints from, or, you know, torn shirts and things from Boy in London. We were very much following the punk scene. Also, as fate would have it, went to school with the birthday party, all of Nick Cave and the crew. So Mm -hmm. those guys were one year, I believe, ahead of us at school. So Nick Cave, Tracy Pugh, Mick Harvey and... Phil Kelvin. I used to watch them practicing in the school canteen. So I called Phil Grammar, there was a school canteen underneath the main hall, and they'd be practicing, they'd be playing. What was interesting, I thought, is like I'd always remember they played Rolling Stones songs. That always confused me. But they did. So when they were young kids at school, they would have been, I suppose, 17, 16, 17, they were doing the occasional Stones cover. But I did see them at early gigs at the uh, the ballroom and the Tiger Lounge and things. So I always had quite a strong interested in music. I saved up money actually doing a part-time job working for Dimitina family in a, in a little pizza bar on High Street, which I pretty much ran for them like five, six nights a week after school. And then often after I'd done that, we'd have a break, we'd play cards till two or three in the morning, and then we'd go to Footscray Market and unload watermelons and pumpkins out of the trucks at Footscray Market. So it was quite an exciting time for a kid, and I was also earning good money. I was at school, working... I'd actually saved up about $5,000 living at home. And my first, I suppose, 
job that I actually had to go for was a job in a little record shop opposite the jam factory in Chapel Street called the Mighty Music Machine. It was pretty. It was actually like a, a disco shop, a dance shop. Molly Meldrum used to come in there once a week. They'd import all the American dance disco titles and things. I worked there and I worked there for a year. And then I thought, oh, maybe could open a record shop. Now, this is without no business plan, no thoughts. The guy that I went to school with, Andrew McGee, we were friends at Caulfield Grammar, and we just had the idea of opening a record shop and came up with the name Greville Records. We would have opened it, I believe it was, no one can put an exact date, Bruce Milne and people are trying to get us to put a date, but I think it was about October 1978 that we opened it. I really don't think too much thought or strategy was necessarily put into it. There was definitely no business plan. Rightly or wrongly, it wouldn't have been too different to most of the things I'd done in my life, and that's primarily through instinct. Basically, we're music enthusiasts. It'd be a fun thing to do open a record shop. And look, in retrospect, people go, oh, wow, that's amazing. You're 18 years old and you opened a shop. But we just thought, you know, you open a shop, so what do we need? We need some records. We need some shelving. We need a shop. So we rented a little shop, and it's funny how the world works. That shop was actually rented from the Biggin and Scott office on Chapel Street. It was a tiny little shop just a few doors down Greville Street on the right. It, it used to be a bead shop, and there was a little upstairs area, and we just ran the retail side downstairs. There was probably literally room in that shop for a wall down each side and a, a couple of racks at the back. And we basically just put some records in the window had a little counter. My father did the signage. My father did some sign writing in, I think, in, in England before he immigrated out to Australia as a 10-pound pom. There is a photo on my Facebook page. My main photo still, I don't tend to change things too much, is a photo of myself and uh, my mum outside Greville Records. And that would have been when Dad had probably just finished, would have done the painting or soon after the store would have opened. So that's probably the earliest shot of the shop. And originally, too, I was still working at Mighty Music Machine when Greville had opened, so I was limited about with being there. We loved music. We had the opportunity, so we did it. And through luck or whatever, you know, Greville Records is still going there today and Warwick owns it and Bruce Milne has bought into the shop recently. Andrew McGee, I believe, sold many, many years ago. He was with a partner at the time. They owned it after I'd left. I think even Nigel Renard from Missing Link may have even owned it for a little while or had some money in it. He bought Missing Link Records off Keith Glass. So, look, it was, they were just a time I think everyone ideally is blessed with growing up at a certain time. They'd meet different people. You know, if you're in New York at the right time, you'd be meeting Lou Reed, other people. So we're just, it was just our little culture, our little group, and, you know, we just grew up with those people at that time and... Uh, they were great times, and I'm, but I'm sure the, the people today and, you know, after us will have their experiences with their musicians and, and their things that were great times too. But really, we just it was really as simple as opening a shop, going, lease a shop, we'd put some shelves in, we'd put some records in, and we'd open it up. I didn't see it as being any more complicated than that. Are we losing our sense of nostalgia looking at the next thing all the time? I'd say maybe a, a general thing that people do have an attachment with what they've grown up with, obviously. I am very guilty of not listening to much new music or very little new music. 
I'm so guilty of that. I've got a, a nice solid record collection and it's got all my Dylan, I want all my Stones, whatever, my Lou Reed, my Bowie, my whatever those artists may be. But I can't say that I'm sort of running out every week and buying a new record or searching for something new. And I suppose that may also go back to how inundated we are with information. It's so easy to be absorbed in these things. There's so much to be absorbed in. What's the most modern artist that you have in your record collection that you actually listen to? (laughs) In all honesty, I'm bad. I go back to the past. I do. Like when it followed a group of friends over to Japan towards the end of last year and picked up some new CDs and bands that I saw there. But unfortunately, I'm guilty. Charged. Should be charged. Richard Kirkaway, who does Song Exploder, did a breakdown of a song that you have on your Bar Band to Learn playlist on Spotify. And it's Closing Time by Semisonic. What does that song mean to you? I think that's a great song. I just love it as a, just a really great pop song. I think it's, it's just a great song. I like singers that express themselves. So I suppose it's great expression, passion, it's a bit of a rock tune. Now, the reason I've got those Spotify playlists is I'm playing with a bunch of guys at the moment. We're doing an original album of eight new songs and a couple of covers, but I've been jamming with those guys, and those playlists are some of the songs we've been jamming on. So that's why they're there. (laughs) Can I share that more publicly? Because there's some absolutely some great tracks on there. So I'm working with a group of guys at the moment. We we started playing songs like Bustload of Faith by Lou Reed. There's obviously a choice of songs from the three different members of the band. But things like Bustload of Faith, I absolutely love by Lou Reed. And I think we do a, a little rockin' version of that. So I'm enjoying now playing some drums and singing and doing a little three-piece outfit. Free-flowing feel, more like a Neil Young crazy horse type thing, just to rockin' out. I think we've got some great songs and we did start working on covers, but now we're working on the originals to ideally release an album over the next couple of months. We're probably working at this stage under the name Busload of Faith as the name of the band. Been admiring that bicycle in the background for a while. We seem to be in your study or in your... What would you describe the room you join us from today? It's pretty much a lounge room. Like We've obviously got bedroom and other rooms and things. But let, yeah, well, let's look at this. Listen, so we're this doing, is this is the old real estate agent coming through. There's both a UK and a US flag. No, I don't. Oh, that's just the stones. Oh, okay. That's my, that's my heritage over there. There's some paintings and things. You know, the, the couple of amps, the 50-disc CD player, the DVD, the VHS player. So this is like very large, lounge roomy, bedroomy. So we can practice here. There's some guitars. So I'm sort of living the dream, really, John. I've got a chopper. <laughs> I've got this one when I had an apartment in St Kilda, I had this chopper. There's a drum kit. So it's like there's a rehearsal room here as well. There's some records with a set list. Um, it's a pretty good setup. I put this together for you today. <laughs> I noticed that you left the reclining nude within shot for the entire conversation. That's a repro that I just like. I bought that. From... Look, the beauty of getting a little bit older is that you can have stuff from when you were, you know, bought 20 years ago or whatever, or 30 years ago. That's like the little, you know, the little messy workbench. 
There's an old piano one to meet there. Well, I was going to ask you about the piano because on the cover of the single for The Old Days Were The Better Days, I assume that is piano that is featured in that and possibly played on as well. Where did the piano come from, if you don't mind telling us? What's the story of the piano, where it came from? I'd be more than happy to tell you that. When I worked in real estate, a lady was selling a house and she had an old piano and she wanted to get rid of it. I love, um, you know, there's some really hard garbage around here is great. I love box shops. I like bargains. And, yes, I just organised and had it delivered in. So it was basically given to me. Just aesthetically, like, I don't really play piano. I can play a couple of chords. But just aesthetically, I like. It's nice to create and that you feel happy in. And it's all, again, it's very subjective, but I, I like having the old stuff around. To my left is the pianola that was my late auntie, who so we laid to rest last Thursday at the age of 93. Um, yes. It was your mother or your grandma who was the famous artist around those parts? My mother's an artist that had been painting for about 30, 40 years, primarily Australian landscapes. She's a member of the you know, Melbourne Artist Society and the different painting groups and things, but and my father as well, out of interest. So that, just trying to see. There is like about 20 to 40 paintings on the wall, and he's currently showing me one of a eucalypt. That's an Australian landscape, which was done by my mother. These paintings of horses, and just you can probably see there, they're done by my father. What was your father's connection with horses, do you think? Okay, my father believed he was reincarnated, that he was an Indian. That's what he believed. And look, what, don't get me wrong, it wasn't something that he brought up, you know, every week, but uh, certainly I've probably heard it from him twice. So he had an affinity with horses. He liked painting as well, and he did do landscapes and things as well, but he just liked horses. And my father loved animals. Like, you know, he's a very, very... Um, kind man so we're sort of brought up in that environment like you know they're vegetarians my mother and father for a good 50 years 50 odd years way before it was fashionable and i think a lot of that was because of the, the cruelty factor of uh, killing animals and things did you in any way take up the vegan vegetarian lifestyle though no no my mother was um i suppose kind enough or fair enough that even when we were young, we'd probably we'd still have a chop with our potatoes and broccoli. I feel blessed that I was, you know, fed simple meals when I was young, and so you know we we still, to this day, most nights we'll just have some potatoes and broccoli and a simple sort of meal for dinner. But no, I still enjoy having a steak when we're out of that restaurant each week or, or whatever. So no, not vegetarian. Sort of quite aware of. It's important to eat, obviously. Well, don't eat a lot of junk food, but no, not uh, certainly not vegetarian. What's your favourite meal to make your new wife? Potatoes, broccoli, maybe a bit of fish. That sounds really good. Bill, before you leave us, I want to get back to the art. The opening of the St Kilda Arts Crawl. A couple of years ago, there was a group of, I suppose it was St Kilda residents and the, the council, and I know on the day the mayor gave a a chat after I played a few tunes. 
basically promoting art in St Kilda. So they got a lot of spaces and there was a few vacant premises on Fitzroy Street, for example, and named the Art Crawl. And they basically just had art exhibitions in different spaces around St Kilda and promoted those. And that was a couple of years ago. Now they, they did another one last year. I'm not sure if there's one happening again this year. And they had a bit of a launch at the uh, Vineyard Hotel in St Kilda. Art has really treated you well, at least in the last few years. Absolutely. It has because I suppose it helps you express yourself. So you're certainly not feeling like you're keeping everything in because you can get everything out. I know that we practice here once a week with the guys. I just feel fantastic after that. And I think the wonderful thing with singing is the expression of it and being able to express your thoughts and ideas and views of the world. Bill, thanks very much for joining Radio Notes. John, thank you very much for having me. Much appreciated. Thank you. Bill Tolson. Latest single, The Old Days Were the Better Days, can be listened to on Spotify. Previous releases of theirs, including With the Learners, his band, can be found at billtolson.bandcamp.com. Next time, it'll be three years on since I called it a day on live radio for some very key reasons. I'll have a chat to you next time regarding that. Thanks very much to our feature guest this week, Bill Tolson. Look out for his solo releases as well as the new music he was talking to us about. Radionotespodcast.com for show notes and links. Web design there by Steve Davis. Theme music by Martin Kennedy and All India Radio. I'm Tammy Weller. John Murch is the producer and host based in Adelaide, South Australia. (laughs) 